Hello, and a very warm welcome to the Excellent Executive Coaching Podcast. This program is about helping you thrive in some of the most challenging coaching situations. Our aim is to support you in bringing your coaching to the next level, whether you're new to coaching or you're already an expert professional. If you're a coach, leader, entrepreneur, leadership development professional, or a human resource manager, this show is for you. Jean-François Nobel participated in launching the internet in France. He then decided to devote himself to research work on the collective intelligence to explain both individual changes and changes in civilization. Rather than remain purely academic, he created his own experimental lab and asked himself, what type of consciousness will we have tomorrow? How will we think? How will we free ourselves from today's individual and collective limitations? Jean-Francois's research led him to foresee new forms of languages, new cultures, and even new forms of money. This interview is taking place at a busy lobby at Hotel Metropole next to Lake Geneva. So welcome to episode 59. Today I'm very pleased to be interviewing Monsieur Jean-Francois Nobel. So how do you say that in English? Nobel? Nobel, <laughs> just the same way, yes. So if you were to uh, describe yourself in two minutes, what would you say? I would describe myself as a happy human being and um, spending most of his time in happiness as a full-time job, thriving as a full-time job and loving life and uh, feeling blessed by having wonderful people around in my life, enjoying every, every you know, piece of it, yes. And on the things that I do, um, although I don't define my being through my doing, but let's say the doing flows from the being. And um, I love working on this new field of collective intelligence, a new research field, a new discipline, among many other things. Yes. So t describe to us collective intelligence. Hmm. So, you know, just like intelligence, we don't have a definition that really encompasses the, the whole thing. Uh, but we can say that we have collective intelligence when you have a group of individuals achieving some complex goal together. And it doesn't matter whether we, we talk about cells, bacteria, ants, birds, or human beings. Actually, you can really say or describe collective intelligence as a property of social living. And also it has turned into a science, a new science that tries to understand those things. So give us, like you said um, in your presentation yesterday for the ICF tour, you gave us a beautiful image of all the fishes in a, in a school of fishes. And so tell us a little bit more how that symbolizes collective intelligence. So yes, the, the fish represents one form of one out of four forms of collective intelligence and probably the oldest one that we call swarm collective intelligence. Swarm collective intelligence when you have a, a high number of individuals that operate together so it doesn't matter whether you talk about an ant colony or a school of fish or those big herds you know with thousands of um, animals together, uh, a flock of birds and we call it um, swarm collective intelligence. And you have three other forms. You have what we call original collective intelligence, where we come from, a small group like a jazz band or a sports team, a squad, 
So when you have, you know, like eight to 20 people, maybe a little more depends on which circumstance, you know, a village or a sports team, you would have different numbers, but mostly small group of people. And then when you go to big numbers in humanity, it goes to pyramidal collective intelligence, big corporations, governments, administration, churches, armies, all these things that we know today that compose our world today, our human world. And then we have a transition today towards the next form of collective intelligence that we call holomidal collective intelligence from holos, holistic, a holistic structure that we see on the internet when you have local and global groups of human beings assembling themselves, self-organizing, working mostly around leadership, more than top-down, you know, command and control kind of structure, you have a much more horizontal arrangement of uh, leadership and uh, people doing things together, distributed uh, networks and so on. Yes. So when you have the collective intelligence, you have, um, no, the chaos theory, in the chaos theory, they say it's chaos, mm -hmm. and then there's a, an attractor, mm -hmm. basically, that sort of organizes the chaos. Mm -hmm. How does that resonate with what you're saying? Oh, yes. Uh, well, that resonates a lot, and chaos theory helps a lot to really understand lots of the emerging social structures that we have today that we haven't seen in the past. Not that it did not exist, but to this scale, to this magnitude, yes, that really, really helps. And something also very new that, that helps that I call in collective intelligence, invisible architectures. It works pretty much like DNA in, in the biological world. You know, if you change one gene, that may change the whole body, the whole outcome. You know, may, I may change one of your genes and you may have, I don't know, big ears, you know, popping up or something. Or your, your skin color may change or a new organ may, may change, whatever. And society has this kind of things through invisible architectures. That means the, the set of rules of possibilities and impossibilities or the set of agreements that you may have. And if you change one of these agreements, you may have a completely different society, a completely different outcome, social outcome that may happen. Examples, language. The way you describe reality completely affects the kind of society you will have. Uh, social codes, technologies like money, you have, for instance, a built-in scarcity dynamics in money, and that really triggers most of our, of our behaviors in society. If you remove the scarcity, if you create something different than money, if you create non-scarce technologies for the next economies, you will have very, very, very different societies that will emerge out of that. So sometimes just you know, changing one thing, one little thing, may change the whole outcome the whole social structure. And I really take it as a very, very important part of collective intelligence. So help me understand, for example, water. Water, we know it has scarcity in it. Mm -hmm. Like money today, this is, it's based on the scarcity. But if we are not scarce, or we don't value the water that we have, and it's a limited resource, how can we change our attitude so that it's, there's more for more people? So you, you may want to create a, to have a distinction between natural scarcity and artificial scarcity. Of course, if you go in the middle of the desert, you have a natural scarcity of water, okay? Now, what we call the scarcity of money comes from completely unnatural causes. And not because of, you know, bad intention people. You have bad intention people in this world, of course. But mostly because of the very design of money itself as a technology. And you can learn that when you play the Monopoly game. 
you know, we start in an equal world. And then if you make some money, you can invest more. Then if you invest more, you will make more. You make more, you can invest more, and so on and so on. So money attracts money. And on the, on the other hand, the less money I have and the less I will have in the future because I'll, I'll pay you more, you know, rents and, uh, and, and all sorts of things. And in the end, I will become bankrupt with so many other players. And then the game ends in a global economic crisis. But you can really observe what we call the Pareto effect. Pareto the name of this Italian sociologist and economist who saw that regardless you know where country you go you seem to have some law independent law of money where money concentrates or condensates in the hands of the few by a law just by a physical law okay not because of bad intentions but just when you play the monopoly game you you experience that directly and so that very physical law creates artificial scarcity, not because of a lack of units, you have plenty of them, but because you, those units, dollars, euros, whatever, concentrates in the hands of the few. And so the most part of the population experiences scarcity. And that then triggers lots of, I mean, most of our behaviors, like what kind of job will I do? Well, I go to do this job, this junk job, I don't like it, but I do it for the money so I can pay for my rent. Or will I buy this or not that? For instance, it does create consumerism. Because if you see most products that we see in supermarkets, they, they have no utility, no, not useful. You know, you, Why do you need this um, toothpaste with eight colors that will make you so happy, right? Well, some people, you know, from the conception to the sales, worked on that kind of toothpaste that no one really needs, but yet that you definitely need through commercials and all those things and that the only function of this toothpaste and all these products consists in attracting money, on making money traps, uh, like you know, little webs to, to capture some flows of money. So you see, as a consequence of that, of scarcity, it triggers scarcity behaviors. That means people hunting for money and spending most of their time in this hunt, not because of, the, of any meaning of life or you know, purpose of life, but on the hunt. And that defines the whole human ecosystem there based on scarcity that also triggers scarcity worldviews you know I, I did a, a TEDx conference years ago in Paris and I started by asking people to breathe through a straw a thin straw and then I asked them okay while you breathe start moving your body and shaking your body and of course very quickly they would experience some panic you know because you don't have enough air and that creates an incentive to get more straws for yourself so you will breathe more, more air. And also to have people dependent on you, you may give them a few straws so they can breathe more, more air and so on. But it also triggers, you know, imagine that you, you get born with a straw in your mouth and you forgot that you breathe through this straw. You may think that we live in a world scarce of air. Not because we have scarcity of air, but because the, the tool to access air has a scarcity. Same thing, we use a scarce tool to access wealth, material wealth, and it has scarcity in it. What if we create new technologies that deactivate this scarcity? Of course, we will still have some natural scarcity here and there, but we will have removed the main, big, huge, humongous one called money, and that will make quite a change. So I can hear some of my listeners saying, well, yes, but 
the money of scarcity of money is also representative of the natural scarcity. What do you say to that? I would say absolutely not. It does not for one single second represent the scarcity of nature. It does create scarcity of nature. Of course, you have some things that scarce in nature. Again, water in the desert, some, you know, raw material that we need, you know, um, metals and things like that. Of course, some of them have scarcity. But for the most part, what we would see as natural scarcity comes as a byproduct of the scarcity of money. Some things that didn't have scarcity, like, like water in the past, has become scarce because we have polluted so much water that now it becomes scarce. Maybe, you know, and that would seem crazy a couple of generations ago to think that we would have to buy or pay so much for water. Maybe someday you, the same thing will happen for air. Like if you want to breathe clean air, you may have to pay for it. I mean, if it continues in this direction, it may happen. Yes. So what are your, some of the solutions do you see in the future? Today we, we have the complete freedom and technology available to create better systems than money. That means tools that allow us to create new sustainable and holistic economies. I mean, by holistic I mean it embraces the balance that we need with nature, the integration of other forms of wealth like happiness, like trust, like quality, things like that, non-material kinds of wealth. Money does not do that. So we need to, we have tools, all these tools available today to really create uh, these things and we can do it now. And I work on that with other people. So you mentioned in the conference yesterday about languages. Tell us about that. Language, you, you can see it as a layer from the long distance past until today that represents reality but again, from the past and until now, until the present, okay? Language does not allow to see lots and lots of things. I mean, the most part of reality, language cannot describe it. Language does not give us tool to represent it inside, in our inner being, but also socially with others. If you can't name something, you don't see it. And if you don't see it, you can't name it. So language covers a very, very superficial part of reality. And I feel okay with that. We feel okay with that because we use language for everyday life. You know, give me the salt and let's drive the car and uh, let's turn on this computer and let's build this airplane, whatever. Okay, so we have this language for this everyday life. But what if we want to evolve? What if I want to evolve? What if I want to express where my inner consciousness can go if I practice, you know, expansion of consciousness, expansion of intelligence? I can't use conventional language anymore. I can't use Chinese or French or, you know, maybe some language will show more accurate for that part of reality rather than this other language, but in most cases, it won't work. So I need to evolve language and not just for finding new words to name new things, but also for finding new ways to express my experience. And that really leads to linguistics or more than that to ontology. Ontology that means what kind of mechanisms can I use to represent and share with others and receive from others an experience? And that uh, leads to very concrete things like, okay, today I speak French or English. How can I evolve that? Because I, I need to build on top of what already exists, just like evolution, you know, it always builds on, on top of the past. But you need to hack the system at some point. 
And sometimes you have quantum leaps. For instance, the writing came as a quantum leap. It really developed a new part of our experience that we call the intellect that we didn't have before. Verbal language also made a huge quantum leap. That means it really sends us to a new level of reality that we can express to ourselves and to others. And uh, the people I work with, you know, the network of researchers and developers I work with, we really, really feel absolutely positive that we arrive on the verge of a new kind of quantum leap of this magnitude, like the invention of language, that we will have the capacity to express flows, to express reality in a dynamic way, which we don't do today. We have an expression of objects interacting with other objects. But object means a petrified perception of something. And we don't have a capacity to see the ever-changing reality, the impermanence of things, to the level where we need today. And we think that what we work on really paves the way to that new kind of reality. I know that I speak in a very theoretical way here because I would say, you know, maybe just like monkeys, how could they talk about the writing, for instance? How could they do that? But very likely, or just speaking, but some of them had probably some kind of intuition that with some gestures and some sounds they could express more, they could go further in their experience. And we, we have that very same experience today that we need to go further. But first thing first, how can I do today with my language, like French or English? And that leads to a very concrete question now. Yes. So tell us how you hack yourself to access a little bit more of a, the flow of things, of a bigger dimension. So first you said the word, to hack. I, I think we can hack ourselves all the time. We, we like to hack, you know, computers and cars and, and whatever objects around us, and I like it, but we can also hack ourselves. We can evolve ourselves. We can reprogram ourselves, recompute, whatever, redesign. So in regards to language, I do it with, by speaking what we call an E-prime, E for English and prime as a derivative of English. That means I don't use the verb to be. I don't think I've used the verb to be since I, I speak with you. Sometimes that creates weird ways to express myself, especially in English, because I don't speak it as my first language. So I don't use the verb to be. So explain why you don't use the word to be. So if I say, Laureen is shy. Or if I say, Geneva is rainy, a rainy city. I don't give you a choice. First thing, I impose that reality to you. And you may have a very different experience, but I impose things that are or are not to others. First consequence. Second consequence, in my own inner reality, I don't connect to myself as the person producing his experience of what he says. If I say, someone is this or that, I don't create my own feeling that I produce that experience for myself. Now, if I say, I think, or I see Geneva as, a, I experience Geneva as a rainy city, for instance. I met Karine, uh, Laureen yesterday, and I found her shy, whatever. Then I express my experience to myself first, and then to you, and you may have a very different experience. So first consequence, second consequence, to be or not to be, 
That means I describe reality in an Aristotelian way, binary way. Does reality really work this way, as on and off kind of thing? I don't think so. I think it has lots of variations and impermanence and you know, nuances and shades of grays and things like that. Well, so why, why should I speak a binary language? So by removing the verb to be, it helped me express reality, I think, in a more accurate way in regards to my own consciousness, my own experience of myself and how I perceive things, but also with others. That really shifted my relationships with others, among other things. And I don't say, you know, I don't see removing the verb to be as the ultimate evolution. I just see it as one small step. But sometimes those small steps can really help make a huge leap inside and out as well. You also mentioned how you leverage silences. Can you mention that? Yes. Uh, so I do usually something we never do, and you know, on, on the radio, uh, silence, because we hate silence. And yes, another thing that I hacked in the social code realm, you know, if we want to connect to deeper parts of our being, we need silence. We need silence for ourselves, but why don't we also ins install silence in our conversations? In our regular conversations, in most cultures that I know, people interrupt one another and they don't leave silence. They no space. We go bing, 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 bing. We go fast. That means we activate the mental part, but we don't activate other parts of our brain, of our structure, in a structure. If I breathe, that gives me time to meditate. And we can go very quickly, you know, in a split of a second, into a meditative state with a little bit of training. I let go of what I want to say, you know, my mission in the world or making my point, whatever. I can listen to myself, to my emotions. I can listen to you. I can deeply listen to you. I can perceive you. I can develop my empathic capacities. And I can allow for inspiration to come. So that leads so many, many things. You know, it opens a whole treasure there that I can tap into just if I breathe. So. That changes uh, not only my inner state, but uh, it also changes all my life. Because when you breathe, well, usually, you know, in a conversation, people will speak before you. They'll take the floor. You don't take it right away, they'll take the floor. And in most cases, they will continue interrupting you. So I find myself not speaking that much in conversations, in, you know, conventional conversations. But at some point, usually people would stop and say, Jean-Francois, you, you've said nothing. Well, you want to say something. And you know, I had so much time for myself. I had so much time to connect with people, to, to see you know, the hidden levels of things, energies, flows, emotions, and to process the topic of the conversation and to allow myself uh, for inspiration, to get inspired. So I would usually say something clever, not because I feel smart, but just because I had time. <laughs> I think you're modest there, but Okay. Well, that, that buys, I think that really, I, you know, I don't see intelligence as something we possess, but as something we can access. open to, access. So it just gives me access to that, just that. And the more we do that, the more we have access to that. It comes with practice. I've seen, you know, people behaving in such, you know, ordinary way, uh, only operating from automated pilot, and then they started practicing that, 
and they just surprise themselves like, wow, I never thought I, I would go there in my thinking, in my behavior, in my wisdom. I never thought I would tap into, into that. And so they experience the transcendence of wisdom just because of that, of that architecture. So I, I guess I, I hope I answered your question. You certainly have answered the question. I have one more last question because we're coming to the end of the interview. But how do you think social media, this, this evolution of social media, is impacting in the way we think? Well, first, if we just look at the internet itself, and then we'll go in, in social media. You know, most people from the old paradigm, they see the internet as kind of the big database and connection between people and social media as well. But look, you know, it takes today a few seconds to connect to any other human being on Earth based on meaning. So I like to say we, we drop here and there semiotic pheromones, you know, bits and bytes of sense, of, of meaning. And we can connect to that. In the past, I would connect to you only because I, I cross you physically or because we have friends or friends of friends of friends. And actually, social networks existed a long time ago. We just have like, you know, more efficient ones. But today, I like to see the internet as a space where I can immediately connect to other people through meaning. And if I add some personal practice to that, like inner alignment, then I can experience synchronicity. I can open my flow, my Twitter flow, or my Facebook, or my mail, or whatever, any social media. If I do that in a, in a time where I align myself, I open my doors of perception, and then I'll certainly connect to the right tweet. Or if I post this tweet or this, I don't know, thought on Facebook or any other social media at this time of the day, because I feel aligned and I want to do it now, I don't do it from duty or from pain or whatever, I'll do it at the right time too. And it will create the ripples, the ripple effect that will have very, very important consequences for me. And so we, maybe we can see also the internet as a space for synchronicity, as the next space for human experience or post-human experiences. We just have seen you know, the, the very, very, very early stage of that. We haven't seen the, the main things. They remain to come. Thank you so very much for an excellent interview. Tell us where people can get a hold of you. Sure. Well, they, they can go to my website, nubel.com, N-O-U-B-E-L.com, uh, for the English version, and uh, nubel.fr for the French version. Thank you very much. And uh, if you don't uh, get all the wonderful information today, you can see on the show notes on excellent executive coaching this interview. Thank you very much, Jean-François. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Excellent Executive Coaching Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the program. You can subscribe to all future podcasts at excellentexecutivecoaching.com and sign up for monthly newsletters featuring all the latest tips and techniques to bring your coaching to the next level. Join us again soon. And until then, bye for now.